Doesn't mean you can't be surprised. Just yeah. Totally surprised. <laughs> you have a little bit of a, a you know, surprise. Bit of surprise is one That's thing. it. Total surprise is different. Exactly. Welcome to episode three of the Wealth and Law podcast. I'm your host, Brent Nelson, and I'm joined by the inimitable Rachel Sass. We're back. Yeah. We made back. it. Hello, it Brent. Thanks for, thanks for returning. I'm pleased that you've returned because that means that I didn't say anything that you thought was so offensive that you wouldn't come back. It is. So early. it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. we still got some time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how are you guys doing? Doing pretty well. Yeah, hanging yeah. in there. Yeah, you know, just taking it day by day. Uh-huh. How about you? We're doing all right. We're uh, we're holding all the studs in place in the house. <laughs> at some point, I think the kids are going to be knocking walls up down. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure that's in our future. Holes yet? Do we have any holes no, yet? No holes yet. Okay. It's going to be like um, Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> They're going to be digging out of here <laughs> at some point. I'm certain that that's going to happen. We're going to find like filed down spoons and things <laughs> in odd places. The the carpet's going to be pulled up in the corner. And be like chunks of concrete dispersed in the yard. That, that's uh, that's in my future. Well, good luck, I guess, with <laughs> that. That's a. <laughs> There's no cure for this. No. <laughs> well, today we're talking about. The Secure Act. The newest, coolest, hottest new topic on the market. I think it is. Everybody was talking about the Secure Act for a while. And then it's interesting. Something about global pandemics will upstage a new, sort of quirky, not all that thrilling for most people change to the tax laws. Fortunately, they tend to do that. I know. And look, I'm appalled. (laughs) <laughs> obviously, but it does do that. I I have to concede, even I have to concede, that on on the priority level of importance, as far as, say, mass media and news goes, and like getting word out to the populace, the global pandemic is above the SECURE Act. So yeah, I just say but... that, you know, for the record, <laughs> so everybody knows. The SECURE Act, oh man, you're gonna have to remind me of what this thing even means. Secure Act. I mean, it's it's got to have... Secure, of course, we're, we're lawyers. You know, it's got to have an acronym. Yeah, but we're talking about legislators. This is like another level of lawyering. Oh, that's that's true. That's true. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty great name, I got to say. It's the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act. That's fantastic. That's, doesn't that just sound wonderful? Yeah. You're, just, you're secure in your retirement. Yeah. You're great. You're well off. When you say all of the words in the acronym, it just kind of rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and you feel like you know what's in the act without even reading the act. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, right? Yeah. That's how I used to feel. And then I read it. And I was like, no, that's different from what I was expecting. <laughs> not feeling so secure now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it does have some interesting little tidbits that I hope we'll talk about. So here's what I was thinking as far as agendas go. Okay. That we would first talk about 
what I think are maybe the five key changes to the law. All right. These are these are like tax changes, so nobody thinks this is like something earth-shattering. But these little tax changes that are in the law. There are others. I am aware that there are others. These are just the ones that I picked out that I think like those are probably the ones that most people will care about. And frankly, they're the ones that matter to most of my clients more than other changes that are in the SECURE Act. There's a bunch of changes that deal with uh, qualified retirement plans themselves and how the plans operate and report, etc. I don't deal with those sorts of clients, so I'm not too keyed in on those issues. And frankly, I don't understand them that well, so I wouldn't want to talk about them anyways. Um, somebody else understands them really <laughs> well. They would do a way better job than me. So these are like top five changes that uh, at least my clients who are people are dealing with. And then we'll talk about trusts and how the changes in the law make weird realities, I'll say, for trusts when trusts are now beneficiaries of defined contribution plans kind of as a general matter, which would be your 401ks, your pension profit sharing plans, uh, and individual retirement accounts. Defined contribution in the sense that the money that's in the account is dependent on the money that you put into it or your employer put into it. It's not, say, a pension where you're owed an obligation that is not tied to the exact money that was put into the account by you or somebody for you. That's that's the little distinction. So that all the stuff that we're going to talk about is defined contribution plans rather than pensions or defined benefit plans. That's a whole nother world. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I just want to make that really yes. clear. <laughs> Literally nothing to do with what we're talking about. And frankly, most of what we're talking about are, are IRA rules. Or we will probably say IRAs. Yeah. Because that's, I think for most people, that's the, that's the common defined contribution plan. And then maybe like right behind that are your 401k plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since only an employee really can have a 401k plan and almost anybody with earned income um, can create an IRA, then IRAs are just more popular. Yep. So so when we say IRA or when I say IRA, I mean defined contribution plans pretty generally. But specifically IRAs fall into that category. Mm-hmm. So the five big changes, exciting changes, thrilling changes, <laughs> uh, the things that will secure the retirement for the populace, the five changes, at least according to me, you can do, you can have your own list of five, <laughs> then you have to do a different podcast. Yeah, so, that's not, that's too much work. <laughs> that's too much work. But my, my five are, number one, there's, uh, they repealed the age limit for contributions. Number two, they made some little changes to qualified charitable distributions. They changed the starting date for required minimum distributions, at least the, the age and then they they changed the rules for paying out the account of a deceased owner and how quickly the account has to be paid out to beneficiaries. And then they made a little, there's a sm- small little change that deals with 529 plans. So this is sort of an exception to my whole spiel there about defined contribution plans and IRAs. 529 plans, are they're kind of... I mean, they're essentially defined contribution plans in the sense that like the account, uh, the balance of the account depends on what you put into it, but they're not IRAs mm-hmm. and they're not just for employed people or people with earned income. And then we'll talk about trusts and how they uh, match up or not with IRAs nowadays. 
Sounds like a good agenda. You like that? I like that. Okay. okay. I'm okay with just the five. You're good. five. That's fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. You conceded. It's, it's not every day that I get a concession, so I'll take it. So the first was they repealed the age limit for making contributions to IRAs. So it used to be you could only make contributions to IRAs before age 70 and a half. And... 70 and a half was this drop dead date. It kind of had two different sides to it. One was it was a drop dead date for putting money into the IRA, at least as a contribution. And then it was sort of a drop dead date in terms of deferring taking money out of the IRA. And so you had to stop putting money in and then you had to start taking money out. That was, it was this dividing line. And what they did was they said, no more dividing line. Uh, the dividing line, at least as it relates to contributions, is no more doesn't exist anymore. We will ignore it and you can continue to make contributions to your IRA even though you're old enough that we, the U.S. Congress, have mandated you must start taking money out of the account. So theoretically, you could continue to put some money into the account and kind of prop the account up while you're taking money out. Now, whether that would actually prop the account up or not depends on how much money's in the account and how uh, how large the distributions are that you have to take from the account, of course. But they just sort of got, just did away with this age limit, which goes to show that pretty much everything in any law anywhere is totally arbitrary. <laughs> it is literally made up and it can be changed. <laughs> Nothing is uh, unchangeable. Absolutely. So, <laughs> The other, there's a, there's a corollary, and that's the second thing that, that I want to talk about, which was the change to the qualified charitable distribution rules. There's a corollary to this uh, getting rid of the, the contribution limit, and it's on the charitable side. So the, the charitable rule is when somebody was, at least in the past, before 2020, when this SECURE Act uh, became law, I guess we should have mentioned that, <laughs> um, but that's the case. So it became law on January 1st. Before then, after age 70 and a half, when somebody had to start taking money out of the account, they could direct up to $100,000 to be distributed to qualified charities and the distribution wouldn't be included in their income. And Congress went back and forth on this provision. It was sunsetted for a lot of years. And then they finally kind of got their act together and decided, hey, this is a good thing and we'll make it permanent, quote unquote, permanent, as permanent as things are. And so this $100,000 max distribution, kind of tax-free distribution that can go to charities was, it was a, it was kind of a carrot and a stick a little bit with the change to the contribution limits because what the law says is that now if you make contributions to your IRA and you deduct them, and so, and so what the law says, well, if you take a deduction after age 72, then we will, we will reduce the amount of qualified charitable distributions that you can make in the future. So you you would reduce the $100,000 amount by the deductions that you're taking for contributions. And kind of in a sense, you don't get to double dip. Like you don't get to take money out tax-free and have gotten a benefit for having put money into the account. So let's imagine, for example, that somebody made a contribution of $6,000 after, after age 72 to make $6,000 contribution to their IRA, then they took out $100,000, gave it to a qualified charity. They would have been able to, in essence, put in $6,000, take a deduction on that money, and then withdraw that money 
and give it to a charity tax-free. In most instances in our tax policy, where you get a deduction, there is some way that the government tries to claw the money back later. There's some mechanism. So, for example, uh, if you have real estate and you're depreciating the real estate, so you're taking deductions for depreciating the real estate, the depreciation deductions then reduce your tax basis in the real estate. And when you sell it later on, the depreciation deductions that you took, if the property is still worth more than its tax basis, the depreciation deductions that you took materialize as capital gains. So the government gets its money back. <laughs> and so in most instances where you have a deduction, there's some sort of offsetting income event or, or penalty that goes along with it. So I think this was kind of their way of coming up. I, you know, I don't have any sort of insider knowledge on this. It's just me <laughs> surmising. But it seems to me like this was kind of their way to say, okay, we'll give you this deduction. We'll give you the carrot, but then we're going to hit you with the stick. Mm-hmm. And that is we're going to reduce the, the qualified charitable distributions. So everything that isn't a qualified charitable distribution that comes out of the account, with some limited exceptions, is taxable to you. So in that way, they've kind of preserved the tax hit. That will come out later. So it's a little bit of a, a sneaky thing, but it's it is mm-hmm. it is consistent when you think about the overall picture of the tax policies and the way tax laws are are written and deductions and kind of these offsets for the deductions that are built in the tax law. It does it does have a logic to it, and it does fit within a framework at least. Yeah. To me. Yeah. And maybe everything I just said makes zero sense to anybody else, but at least <laughs> in my mind, it does seem to have some sort of connection. Yeah. There's a kind of consistent feeling that we're seeing yeah, consistent exactly. structure with exactly. it. It's not so outside of the ordinary way that they write tax laws mm-hmm. that somebody could be totally surprised by it. Doesn't mean you can't be surprised. Just yeah. totally surprised. <laughs> <laughs> you have a little bit of a, a you know surprise, surprise is one That's thing. It. Total surprise is different. Exactly. Well, now, so this third, number three on your list, yes. Brent, on kind Fantastic of... Fantastic list. Very much Thank so. You. Thank you. Rachel. Very much. So I kind of want to talk about your third because you kind of touched on it a little bit at the very beginning with your number one. So you talked about how, you know, they with the SECURE Act, they got rid of this age limit on contributions. There's no line anymore. There's still a line, though, for when you have to take your required minimum distributions, your RMDs. Now, the old rule was is that when an IRA owner, again, we're talking about 401ks as well, defined contribution plans, when that owner turns 70 and a half, then they would have to start taking their RMDs over the rest of their life expectancy. That's the old rule. So the new rule, the SECURE Act, now has changed it to 72. You get an extra year and a half in there. That's fantastic. Right? Just a little bit more. we got to inch it up there slowly and slowly. But you know, that, that year and a half is really great. That year and a half means that your account gets to grow tax-free for another year and a half. So hopefully it's a good year and a half and it can go up there before you have to start taking your required minimum distributions. The rule about like when do you have to start taking the money out, kind of a curious... I always thought it was a curious one, especially on the 70, 70 and a half rule. Because the way that the rule used to work is that you had to, and it still does work this way, but the way that the rule worked pre-2020 was that you had to start taking out your required your required minimum distributions or RMDs by April of the year after the year in which you turned 70 and a half. So you actually got this like extra year of deferral. It's just in the first year, you would have to take your quote unquote first year's required minimum distribution. And in that same calendar year, you would have to take your second year's 
required minimum distribution. So you took two of them in one year, but you got to defer the first one until the next year, which always, in my mind, begged the question of why even defer the first one? It doesn't really You got to do it. Yeah. You know, why even call it a 70 and a half rule? <laughs> because you get to defer it until the next year anyway. So why not just say the rule is when you turn 71 in April, you got to take the money out or the year that you would turn 71 in that April, you have to take the money out. So that's in essence, that's kind of a little bit the way that it is now. It's like you turn 72, um, you no longer have to do this weird kind of math in your head about, am I 70 and a half? It's just like 72. Yeah, I turned 72 this year. Everybody can calculate that pretty easily. And then the next year, by April, you got to take out your first RMD and you got to take out the next RMD that year too. So I still don't know why they don't just say it's a hard and fast. Um, you got to take the money out by April. That's the starting date, but the starting date, you know, that's like the the hard and fast rule. There's no 72 rule. It's the April of year 73 rule, mm-hmm. but that's the way the rules work. It's a, I don't know. They didn't ask my opinion. They got to keep it a little complicated. It's, they got to keep us in business, right? But they do. They do keep us in business. They keep regulation writers. Yes. <laughs> so, all right. Speaking of arbitrary rules, the other arbitrary rule that they came up with was the rule about beneficiaries and beneficiaries of IRAs historically were given some pretty, I think, pretty fair benefits. It was baked right into the statute. So it wasn't like somebody concocted this. Congress came up with this. But the rule was that under the right circumstances, the beneficiary had to take the money out at least as quickly as the owner was taking the money out. And the regulations then said, okay, so here's how we'll do it. If, this is the old rule, before age 70 and a half, so now 72, the owner dies, then the regulations gave two rules. And it said, well, if they named a, quote, designated beneficiary, then the designated beneficiary could take the money out of the account over the longer of the owner's life expectancy or the designated beneficiary's life expectancy. And if the owner didn't name a designated beneficiary, which basically meant they didn't name an individual, which could be naming a charity, could be naming an estate, those would be non-individuals, then the non-designated beneficiary would have to take the money out within five years of the person's date of death. And the the quote-unquote five-year rule. And if the owner died after age 70 and a half, now 72, then the same rules would apply except if the owner did not name a designated beneficiary, then instead of the five-year rule, the beneficiary, who is usually a non-individual, would have to take money out of the account over the owner's remaining life expectancy rather than being able to stretch out the account over, say, a beneficiary's younger life expectancy. So in essence, the beneficiary, if they were much younger, they could stretch out the withdrawals from the account if the owner was over age 70 and a half and they died and they had a designated beneficiary. The rule now is that with very limited exceptions, the beneficiary must take the money out within 10 years of the owner's date of death. Full stop. If the person is already 72, within 10 years, you got to take the money out. There's some exceptions. So there's an exception if the beneficiary is the surviving spouse of the owner, this 10-year rule doesn't apply. If the beneficiary is under 18, 
the rule doesn't apply. If the beneficiary is ill uh, or essentially disabled, the rule doesn't apply. And then if the beneficiary is less than 10 years younger than the owner of the account, then this 10-year rule doesn't apply. Outside of that carve-out, the quote-unquote eligible designated beneficiaries, what these people are called, outside of eligible designated beneficiaries, regular old designated beneficiaries <laughs> got to take the money out within 10 years. If if the owner is over age 72, this is really the old rule too, uh, then if the owner doesn't name a beneficiary who's younger than them, then you would just take the money out over the owner's life expectancy because that would still be the longer of the two life expectancy. It's always this like longer of rule. Surviving spouses have always had a special rule where they could take, say, an IRA and then roll it into their own account. And so once they roll it into their own account, they can be treated as the owner of the account rather than a beneficiary. And being an owner is special because if they're if the surviving spouse is under age 72, once they roll it into their account, if they don't want to take the money out until 72, they don't have to because they're the owner. But if they wanted to take the money out of the account and they haven't reached age 72, the surviving spouse gets to elect to be the beneficiary rather than the owner. And beneficiaries can take money out of an IRA without paying an early withdrawal penalty. And so if the if the early withdrawal penalty kicks in before age 50 and a half, 59 and a half, excuse me. So if you have a surviving spouse who's younger and they want, they need to get access to the funds, oftentimes they would just, they'll just treat themselves as the beneficiary of the account. They start taking money out. They don't pay this early withdrawal penalty, which is a 10% penalty. So they can avoid that rule, but that is only applicable to surviving spouse, uh, surviving spouse beneficiaries. Everybody else who's not a surviving spouse is like in this totally other universe and they don't get the benefit of any of the surviving spouse rules. So the the tenure rule kind of preserves these surviving spouse rules. It preserves the old rule, the stretch rules for this very limited class of beneficiaries, at least while they qualify to be in that class. So they're under 18 or they're disabled. Um, I guess if they're not more than 10 years younger than the the owner, then it doesn't really matter anyways, but this sort of has this little carve out. And the way that the rules seem to work is that once, say, a minor beneficiary turns 18 and now they're no longer under 18, then the 10-year rule kicks in. So they get to kind of stretch the account out under the normal, what I call the old rules, using their life expectancy, which would be very small little payouts every year. And then when they turn 18, they got 10 years. They got to take the money out within the 10-year period. And then at the end of the 10 years, the account balance needs to be zero. Otherwise, they're in trouble. Uh, what's What remains to be seen is how financial institutions are going to treat that. Um, there's been a similar rule for a long time in the annuity context where the annuity rules would say if you didn't name a if you didn't name a designated beneficiary, then uh, you'd have to take the money out within five years of the death of the annuitant. So the person whose life kind of determines the payout on the policy. That rule is inconsistently applied among life insurance companies. So some of them will say, yeah, you can take the money out in equal increments for five years. Or they'll say, you got to take all the money out. Now we don't want to deal with it. Or they'll say, you got to take the money out by the end of the fifth year, but you don't have to take any money out in the interim. And on the IRA side, when this five-year rule applies for IRAs, it's always really applied as a take the money out by the end of the fifth year. So you can defer until the end of the fifth year to take the money out. And that's the way that the IRA rules were written, even though the annuity rules are written the same way. It's basically the same language, but they're sort of applied differently because the insurance companies require different payout rates. And at least under the old rules, I had not seen any financial institutions say, 
if the five year rule applies, you got to take it out like with equal distributions every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they always seem to allow you to just wait, and then so long it was it was, it was getting reported properly on the 1099Rs, which is the reporting form. Everybody was kind of happy, at least from my perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Probably nobody else even thought about it, but I was <laughs> I was thinking about it. So it sort of remains to be seen if financial institutions are going to give this 10-year rule the same treatment and allow you to wait until the end of the 10th year to take the money out. So you could get 10 years of tax deferral and then take the money out at the end of the 10 years if you have a beneficiary who doesn't need access to the account immediately. And then under the 10-year rule, if a beneficiary did need access to the account, the way the rule is written, they ought to have as much or as little access as they want before the end of the 10th year because that's the hard stop where the account's got to go to zero. But everything in between, they ought to be able to pick and choose how much of the account they take out every year, including zero. But again, I, I, I just haven't seen it play out. So I don't know if financial institutions are going to view it the same way and they're going to let you do it or if they're going to mandate Mm -hmm. some other payout. I hope they don't because it's always easier for me if they just follow what the tax rules say and they don't come up with a different rule um, like some of the insurance companies do in the deferred annuity context. Yeah. See, it's easy. Oh, very easy. I mean, goodness, I I could do that with my eyes closed. I could do that with, you know, multitasking and yeah. That that, just that one provision was, uh, when I read through it, a provision that um, threw me into a tailspin for several days, (laughs) banging my head against the wall, trying to understand it. Yeah. And also thinking, I didn't get that out of Secure Act. I did not get that out of that acronym. <laughs> when I read Secure Act, I did not see this coming. <laughs> that doesn't set up the community community for retirement enhancement. I don't. I don't Come know on. that it does. <laughs> Somebody did. It <laughs> it's gotta. We got. We gotta keep things interesting. Yeah. You know, it's gotta see how everything plays out, and they gotta gotta make it somewhat complicated. It's gonna be. Fun somehow for everyone, right? Oh, fun. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that is what every client will say about it. Yes. <laughs> well, switching gears a little bit from retirement plans, we're going to 529 plans. Okay. So the last thing on the list, number five. So 529 plans, it's like a college savings plan. It's uh, named after Section 529 of the code. That's kind of where they got that number from. Nothing else very special about that. Um, But it's basically a plan that allows, you know, tax-free investment and growth. And then you have a tax-free use of the funds for qualified higher education expenses. It can also be used sometimes for K-12 through expenses. Um, So this is great for parents setting up a 529 plan for their children put money away for college. Um, great plans. I wish I had a 529 plan. That would have been really helpful for law school, yeah. you know? Did you get one after the fact? Uh, let's see. I am not too sure. I don't, no, I don't I think, don't, I don't think my parents would still do that for me actually. So yeah. Unfortunately they've not. Ex- they've expressed their love enough. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, no more, uh, no more help there. Student loans are all on me, yeah. but for people who have student loans and they had a 529 plan, the SECURE Act added a new little feature. So the new rule under the SECURE Act is that you can use up to $10,000 to pay for student loans. Very helpful since a lot of people have student loans yeah. these days. Um, it is important to note that this is an aggregate lifetime limit. So unfortunately, we can't be using $10,000 every single year. 
But $10,000 for student loans is still something, and that will definitely help out the student in your life. Yeah, no kidding. Something is better than nothing. Exactly. And if I know students, they'll take something over nothing. Hey, I'll take five bucks towards my student yeah. loans. It's something extra I can yeah. pay. I've seen students do a lot of things for free pizza. Yes. They come <laughs> yes. to a lot of less than interesting lectures for free pizza. And not so great free pizza. No, well, I say right. it's. I'm not, not eating luxury pizza. customized pizza. No, I'm uh, getting kind of standard cheese pizza that sat out for a few hours. Yes, exactly. So I'm sure all uh, all the students in the world are doing cartwheels. Uh, yes, change to five twenty nine plans. Very much so. Well, we've come to the final art item on my agenda, which is trusts and IRAs. All right. All right. So let me try and set this up. Hopefully this makes sense. Um, I'm going to tell you the old rule, the old planning. And then I'm going to tell you what I think the new planning is. And when I say the old rules, like these rules still exist. The Secure Act did nothing to change these rules. So they still exist. It's just like taking the prior rules and then adding the Secure Act on top and then trying to figure out what comes out on the backside of that. Okay. Right? And you kind of... Mushing them together. Mush them together. What All do you right. get? The IRA rules, as I was uh, very boringly droning <laughs> on about, say that if if you don't name a designated beneficiary, then these kind of negative things can happen. Mm-hmm. And a designated beneficiary has to be an individual. Trusts aren't individuals. And the law has a carve out for trusts. And what the law says is if the tr- basically if the trust is valid and it's either irrevocable or it becomes irrevocable when the owner dies and you meet certain what I call trust disclosure rules where you have to like disclose the terms of the trust to the, the IRA custodian or you have to um, give them a copy of the trust agreement. You got to do it within a certain amount of time. As long as you meet all those standards, then the IRS will ignore that the trust exists for purposes of figuring out who are the beneficiaries on the account. And the key to figuring out who the beneficiaries are in the account is that it is the beneficiary's life expectancy, potentially, or this 10-year rule. That applies to figure out how much money must come out every year. And then that number, if it is not followed, has penalties that are attached to it. So it all kind of cascades to penalties at the end of the day. That's what it's really set up for. But it's to figure out how quickly do you have to take the money out of the account. That's the magic of it. Okay. And so the rule says you look through the the trust and you look at the underlying beneficiaries of the trust and you treat them as if they were named as the beneficiaries directly. And if the trust says something along the lines of take money out of my IRA and pay it directly to my beneficiary and don't hold any amount of that money in the trust, then you will only use the life expectancy of the beneficiary receiving the money from the IRA. You will you will pretend that only that beneficiary is the beneficiary of the account, not the trust, and not any other beneficiary ever at any point in the future or otherwise. Okay. Just that beneficiary counts. If instead the trust can accumulate any amount from the IRA, then the rule says, ah, now every other beneficiary has an interest in that accumulated amount. And so you have to look at all the other beneficiaries, including beneficiaries who come in the future and including the beneficiaries who could benefit if a current beneficiary appointed the trust property to that person. And this was called an accumulation trust. And oftentimes 
what would happen with an accumulation trust is that some beneficiary would have the ability to appoint the trust property either to an estate or to a charity when they die. And just having that ability, at least in the eyes of the IRS, meant that there was a non-individual named and therefore no designated beneficiary, period. Messes it all up. It messes it all up. That was the rule. So the the usual planning, I would say, like nine out of ten times, there's a useless statistic for you. That's just a few <laughs> numbers to make it sound authoritative. Uh, I'd say like nine out of ten times, you would do a trust that paid everything straight out to the beneficiary. Call it a conduit trust. Okay. Now we have this 10-year rule. So the 10-year rule would say if you have a conduit trust and the person who's the beneficiary is not a, quote, eligible designated beneficiary, so the spouse, somebody under 18, you know, a disabled person, etc., mm-hmm. then the 10-year rule applies, meaning at the end of 10 years, the trustee must take all the money out of the account paid out to the beneficiary. That is the maximum amount of stretching that you get with the trust. So the trust doesn't get you anything better than you could have had by just naming the beneficiary directly, except that the trustee controls how much money can come out of the account. And that's usually kind of the the crux of the matter is that mom or dad doesn't trust son or daughter to not just go in and scoop all the money out of the IRA immediately. And so they name a trust for the the son or daughter as the IRA beneficiary. Now, uh, you might remember that if an owner of an account dies after age 72 and fails to name a designated beneficiary, then the penalty, quote unquote penalty, is you have to take the money out over their remaining life expectancy. And that used to be a bad thing. But now when you look at the life expectancy rules, it might not always be a bad thing. So for example, when you don't need a name a designated beneficiary and you have to use the owner's life expectancy, like they die and you pretend they're kind of the beneficiary. You look at their age. Let's say they die at age uh, exactly 72, just for an easy number. So they die exactly at age 72. And then you look on these IRS, IRS um, charts and on the chart, A 72-year-old has a 17.1-year life expectancy. And every year, when you're trying to figure out how much of the account has to come out, you take the account balance basically at the end of the year and you divide it by this number. And the first year, you use 17.1. The next year, you use 16.1. The year after that, you use 15.1. So you just keep minusing one off the number, Mm -hmm. meaning you get 17 years of tax deferral before you have to take all the money out. I'm not a math genius. 17 (laughs) is more than 10. Yep. And so if you wanted more deferral, you wanted more, quote, stretching of the account, you would want the trust under the right circumstances to be an accumulation trust, not a conduit trust, Mm -hmm. because you would actually get more time to leave the money parked in the account to grow when markets actually grow, but to grow uh, income tax-free. Yeah. And so I think what you're going to see and what, what I'm starting to do for clients is to have some trust that is basically uh, has a provision that says that the trusted name is the beneficiary on like an IRA, that depending on the age of the owner when they die and the identity of the beneficiary, that will determine which provision kicks in, whether it's an accumulation trust or it's a conduit trust. And always the provision that you want to kick in is the one that will give you the most deferral, of course, assuming that tax deferral is what you want. Now, we never limit at least I don't ever limit the trustee to say that's the only amount you can take out of the trust. So we always give the trustee the ability to take out more. So they're not locked into that payout period. But if they wanted to like maximize the tax deferral, they could get the maximum amount of tax deferral that is at at all possible. So to take just two steps back and maybe put more 
a, a more fine point on it, in order to get, say, the 17-year payout period, you have to name a trust. Because if you name the beneficiary directly, um, other than being prescient about your own demise and being able to like flip in and out the right beneficiary at the right time, you can't plan for this uh, this ability to flip between contingencies because mm-hmm. you don't know when you're going to die and you don't know who the beneficiaries are going to be when you die because you don't know who's going to survive you. And so uh, if you're going to, quote, plan for it, the only actually way to plan for it is to name the right kind of trust that can flip between an accumulation or a conduit trust, depending on how old the, the owner was and who the beneficiaries actually are when the owner dies. So like then you start testing things for purposes of the trust, like on the date of the owner's death, when you have all the facts, then you know which provisions in the trust actually kick in. And the trust has provisions that kick in under one set of circumstances versus another versus maybe a third. So you're trying to pick and choose as much as you can within the trust, like the maximum amount of deferral you can get out of these accounts. Mm-hmm. So that's a very much a mouthful, but basically that's, I think that's kind of where the, the planning is headed mm-hmm. as far as trusts go. And then when you glob on the secure act onto the old trust rules, yeah, that's, that's what we're left with. Yeah. It doesn't make it any easier for people to understand, unfortunately. <laughs> trust has got to be a little bit more flexible. It's got to be a little more flexible. You can't back into it, too, mm-hmm. I guess I should point out. It's something that you have to do on the front end. You have to, the trust has to have the provisions in it up front because once you die, you're locked into the provisions that are in the trust. Mm-hmm. You don't get to go in and change them after the fact. So the trust has to have the provisions before you pass away, meaning you have to have thought about it mm-hmm. before you passed away. Yeah. It's kind of a dirty trick, to be honest. Because it's like, it's a footfall for people who don't do the planning. And so then they, unless circumstances just align for them, they don't get the maximum amount of benefit that you can actually squeeze out of these accounts. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you pay money to um, nerdy lawyers, then they might actually be able to get you to squeeze as much value out of these accounts as you possibly can get. (laughs) I don't know, you know, from like a social justice standpoint, that's not really fair. But Mm -hmm. that's, that's the system we have. Yeah. Well, we've said a lot about the Secure Act. There's more in there. There's a lot more in there. <laughs> it's almost hard to <laughs> But I think that's a fair summary of the salient points. If anybody actually listened to all of it, I say that they are allowed to put a smiley face sticker on their shirt today. Absolutely. I think they earned it. But as long as they didn't fall asleep. Yeah. They had to have actually listened to the whole thing. <laughs> all right, forget it. That's no <laughs> All right. Thank you again, Rachel. Mm-hmm. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.